Hello and welcome to Sam Was Here, a podcast for parents who have lost a son or a daughter to addiction. My name is Angie. Last November 14th at 12.16 a.m., I received the phone call that changed my life forever. My son was dead. I'm here to talk about Sam's life, addiction, and death, to openly discuss my grief, healing, and the decision to move forward. I hope parents listening will find comfort in knowing that they are not alone, support in navigating their grief, and also feel inspired to move forward without regret or shame. We can't bring our kids back, but I believe that we can and should grow stronger in our grief because it's the only choice we have. Hi, and welcome back to Sam Was Here. Once again, thank you so much for stopping in. First of all, I want to welcome new listeners and start out by offering you my true condolences if you have lost a child or any loved one to this maddening disease of addiction. I am grateful that you're here, and I'm also sorry that you feel the need to be here. So let's get started. In this episode, we will cover four topics. First, I'll talk about what we know and what we don't know about Sam's death. How did he end up in a frozen field discovered by a child days after he died? Many of us are trying to figure this out, right? We know our kid is dead. We're trying to put the pieces together. Second, I'll discuss the challenge of moving forward without all the answers and four reasons why it's important to accept this as part of our journey, as well as my personal strategy for moving forward after Sam's death without all the answers. Third, I want to shed some light on something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which I imagine is true of every single parent in the world who ever has lost a child. We have a timeline now, before they died and after they died. And I want to talk about that a little bit. It's been very prevalent in my thinking, and I want to share how this impacts my life. And fourth and last, as in every podcast, I'll go over a few things that I'm noticing in life in general, now that I'm close to four and a half months following Sam's death. And then I'll close with my weekly limerick. So let's get started. What we know and what we don't know about Sam's death. I know specific details aren't really important here, but for context, I'm going to set the stage a little bit for Sam's life right before he died. He was currently living at his dad's and he was waiting for a tax refund check. He was going to go out on the street and do some drugs. He also was very aware that his upcoming rehab was pending. And as every parent knows, when a kid knows that they're going to do rehab, they like to go out and do it big. So we were definitely um, had some concerns at this point. The last time I saw Sam was either October 30th or 31st. And to this day, I can't figure out how I can't figure that out. But I do know that the last thing that I ever said to him was that I love him because it always was. So we know that he left Scott's house. I know that he left Scott's house either the 31st or the 1st when he got the check. He told his dad he was going to go to the bank, cash his check. He'd probably be gone for a couple days and then he'd be back. And that's the last time his dad ever saw him. And then Scott did get a text on the 3rd of November, and that is the last that we ever heard from him. So we were all trying to reach him after this point, but we were so used to this disappearing act. We had been going through it for so long. Sam was 23 years old, 
So we were sending them texts and randomly calling them, but there was nothing frantic in our behavior. We've been doing this for years, and the frantic behavior for a 23-year-old man consistently choosing to go on the street eventually diminishes in time is what I discovered with us. So while I was on vacation in California, around the 8th or 9th of November, I actually got a call from uh, campus police. We have a lot of different campuses here in the Denver area. And they said that they had found Sam's cell phone behind a locked gate. And I wasn't overly concerned. I explained a little bit of Sam's history and said that he this was pretty common for him. And so I let Scott know. And Scott was actually kind of sick at the time, so he never did recover the phone before Sam died. And one of the reasons that we weren't that concerned about this is because historically, this is Sam. And I remember as far back as elementary school, I don't know if your kids' schools did this, but on the last day of school, our school would take all of the unclaimed lost and found items from the entire year and put them on these tables lining the halls. And I remember going through those lost and found items and literally walking out of the school with armloads of jackets and sweatshirts. And the only other kid I had in the school at the time was Spencer, who has always been my neat and clean one and always kept track of his stuff. So primarily what I was doing at the end of each year was scooping up all of the things that Sam had just left behind him. So this idea of losing things wasn't new. And now into his drug addiction, he was also selling a lot of things. We found out that Sam had been discovered Uh, by a young girl on a nature hike with her father on November 13th. He wasn't on the path, but she ran off the path to go check out some deer, and there he was. His body was frozen, and autopsy results later showed that he died of hypothermia in combination with an overdose of fentanyl, meth, and suboxone. So we were also able to find out that on November 3rd, Sam had been hiding in some woman's basement. Now it was super cold out, it was below freezing, it was snowy, and she didn't press charges, but she did call the police. So part of me thinks that I know Sam and he overall has an extremely gentle nature and he's not threatening, but the story seems awfully odd. And to be honest, we have all wondered if Sam actually might have known the person whose basement he was in, and that's why they didn't press charges. We're just not exactly sure what happened there. And we thought about trying to figure that out exactly where, what basement he was in, but then we decided that that was not going to benefit us in any way. So we chose to move on. At that point, police took him to a train station to go to Denver. The reason they did this is because Littleton does not have homeless shelters and Sam really wasn't dressed to be outside. So they took him to a train station and they saw him talking to some people And it turns out he was seen again later that evening at that same train station talking to people. And that is the last time anybody ever saw him. So what we don't know is what happened between November 3rd and November 13th when his body was discovered. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but I will talk about it at some point because we all believe that we were getting these kind of universal signs that were telling us something. And so that some people are kind of into that, some people aren't, but um, that is a topic for a different episode. 
Okay, so this brings us to our second point. So here we are without the answers we seek, and there's no possibility of getting them, just like so many of you listening. So it'd be really easy to get stuck right here in a standoff against the lack of answers. But the problem is, is that we're never going to win, and we can get caught in that standoff for the rest of our lives if we choose to. So at times like these, I think it's really important that we take a step back, that we pan out a little bit on the situation and take a look at exactly what it is that we're searching for. So here are four points to think about when we are so desperately seeking these answers. And again, this is a common frustration among us parents losing our kids this way because our kids literally took those answers with them when they died. Now, I'm not talking about situations where there are more people involved so that you might be able to get some more answers or situations where there are legal issues involved. Of course, then you're going to seek more answers. But what I'm talking about here is simply these answers that we seek in our heads. The answer is not as powerful as we think. And the answer is just that, the answer and that is all. So sometimes when we seek answers, it does make sense because answers can create change and awareness. But in this particular situation, that's not going to happen. Our answers aren't going to change anything. So we either know or we don't, but our kid's still dead. And I think that we imagine that somehow these answers are our, our way that we're going to feel better or something. But it's just all it is is an answer but we're still left with every single aspect of dealing with our kid's death. Second, we're never going to feel closure. Closure is such a hot buzzword, but I think the only thing that closure is good for is doors, because it certainly as hell does not make a difference when you lose your kid. We're not going to get closure, so knowing more is not going to bring closure, period. Now, I want to emphasize this a little bit with a different point that I heard. I was listening to a podcast a while ago. The host was talking about breakups and how everybody experiencing a breakup, usually the person who's dumped, right? They always want that last conversation. They want closure. They want to know what happened and how she really emphasized, hey, look, don't be searching for your closure because once you get your closure, once you get the answers, all that does is you're going to open more questions, right? So your closure, we seek closure, but in this circumstance, we lost our kid. There is no closure here. So I remember right when Sam died and I remember begging the universe for one more conversation, one more day, one more hug, one more moment. And then it hit me like a shit ton of bricks. That would never be enough. That would never be enough because I would just want more. I would just want more. So we're seeking a closure that we're not going to get. And the answer to these questions that we seek would simply serve to open more questions. It's not going to serve what we're wanting it to. It's not going to settle us down. The third reason is that the answer that we get is not going to make any more sense than the addiction did. So we're searching for answers that will make sense from a world that that doesn't make sense. Whatever the specific details of their death are, they will never make sense to us because we don't live in that world. By the time our kids die of addiction, their minds are often changed, and then there's no possible way that their choices are going to make sense. We have to remember that it's like we're speaking about children, young children, whose reasoning doesn't make sense either. 
So our reasoning is on a completely different level than them. And we have to appreciate that. So I remember one time Sam telling me about hiding behind a dumpster for hours one night thinking that someone was after him. So for all I know, the night he died, he could have been hiding from another elusive chaser and crawled into the field to avoid him and died. And so that thought, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't do anything for me. It, it, it just doesn't fit into my world. And the fourth reason is that our thinking can lead to cognitive distortions, which are simply negative thinking patterns that aren't based in fact or reality. So these are thought to be evolutionary and they often develop in times of stress. The issue that we face here is that we're under the biggest stress known to mankind. And the problem with cognitive distortions is that the bigger the stress, we more that we use them and the thinking patterns within themselves have the ability to cause depression, stress, and anxiety. So let's take a little bit of a look at that. Once again, pan out. We're dealing with our kid's death. We have stress, depression, and anxiety. And we think it can't get any worse. But what I'm telling you is that it can get worse. We can actually put cognitive distorted thinking on top of it and make it worse. And so the longer that we are in these thinking patterns, the more adverse the effects can be. So we're already suffering all of these emotions already. The ruminating and the mind-numbing grief and every other symptom of losing our kids. And I think it's so important to recognize that these um, thoughts and patterns have such great effect on us. So as humans, we are designed for storytelling. We can't leave a story incomplete, right? Knowing this, we have to fill in the gaps. Our kid is dead. And so we're humanly designed to need to fill in those gaps. So this is where it gets a little tricky. We now have a choice of how we're going to fill in those gaps. And this is actually called reframing. And it is one of the methods for dealing with cognitive distortion which if you look at all the things up above, really have to do with cognitive distortion. Reframing can be a great tool. It's the one that I chose to use, and I want to explain to you exactly how I did that. So first of all, what I did was I decided to look at the facts that I knew about Sam's death. He had toxic levels of fentanyl and meth in his system, and he wandered into a field. He would have died with or without the hypothermia. Also, he sat down to take his sweatpants off because he had shorts underneath. Therefore, I can surmise that he was going through that notorious point in hypothermia in which the victim feels hot. Third, Sam had no signs of physical violence on his body, so I feel confident that he was not hurt by anyone else when he died. Fourth, hypothermia, even without drugs, is known to calm the mind and trick the brain, so death is much less painful than we imagine it to be. Therefore, with the drugs, I can't imagine he felt anything at all. So this version both makes sense to me, is scientifically adequate, and is one I can live with. Sam would have needed much more than a blanket or a warm jacket that night to survive below freezing conditions outside. He also would not have sat down in a field and died in the cold without toxic levels of drugs in his system. 
And another sidebar that I did is I read a great article on hypothermia in Outside Magazine to get a better understanding of a sober man's version of freezing to death. And that was super beneficial to me. So I know that every situation is different. And as far as drug overdoses do go, Sam's situation was likely as painless as it gets. Many of you listening are dealing with darker situations, but that doesn't mean that you can't use this uh, reframing to help yourself. So take the story, what you know, based on the facts that what you know, and then pan out and fill in the gaps in a way that makes sense to you are scientifically adequate and is something that you can live with. I know it sounds hokey, but it is a really, really good way to move forward. And if you think about this, this is exactly what detectives do when they try to determine a matter of death. They take the facts they know and they create a timeline and then they attempt to fill it with scientific gaps. We're doing that and then we're going to close the case, not because it's over, but because this is the story that we're going to move forward with. Because we know, as I've just gone over and over, the, co- the ruminating, the cognitive distortions are really, really detrimental for us. Mark Twain once said, I've had a lot of worries in my life. Most of them never happened. We have suffered the most unbearable pain known to humans but we have to understand how important it is to keep our mind in the game here because we can make it so much worse for ourselves than it actually is. And it's already so bad now that doesn't seem possible, but it absolutely is. Moving on to the third topic, the timeline I now live on after Sam's death. So since Sam died, and I think you can all relate to this, everything I've ever done since he died has been, this is the first thing I've done since Sam died, or the first time I've done this particular thing since Sam died. Or if it's a new thing, I wonder if Sam would like this. I wonder if he would think it was fun. I wonder if he would want to do it. And really there doesn't seem to be a thought or an event that somehow doesn't connect to Sam's death and the fact that he's gone. And the interesting thing that I feel is it's almost feels like a protective sense over my grief and over Sam's death, as if I carry it everywhere and position my life around it because it belongs to me as his mom. And um, I, I don't know how better to explain it. Maybe I will down the line sometime, but maybe you can relate. Do you feel kind of protective over your grief and your story because that's what you have of your kid? Or is it just me? I I don't know. Anyway, I recently visited my mom in Minnesota for the first time since Sam died, and that was excruciating. I kept thinking, last time I was here, all four of my kids were alive. Now one is dead. Now, especially because Sam really loved Minnesota, he loved the outdoors and the hunting and the fishing there, so it was a real special place to him. And it really hurt my heart so bad that I knew that he would never, ever go back there again. And I noticed that um, one of the things that I always do when I go to my mom's is I pull out all these photo albums and go through them. And this time I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Now that Sam was gone, I could not look at pictures from the past, whether they involved him or not. And then 
There was the first yoga class I taught after Sam's death, my first 10-mile hike, our first holidays, and the list goes on. So it puts some added emotion into every single day. Even today, for example, this is my first March 24th without my son in almost 24 years, and it absolutely sucked. The first time going to lunch with my mom in a restaurant since Sam died. I cried and I couldn't eat. And so everything that we do, we put on this timeline. Everything that I experience in my life, I have to believe there's also a benefit or another reason. And I discovered that the beauty of this automatic timeline that has popped up in my life is that it also serves as such a tremendous reminder of how short life is. Sam died four months ago, and I don't know how I survived, but here I am. More than a third of a year has passed. I'm going to blink, and the year is going to go by, and then more years after it, whether I am lost in my grief or not. So this is the number one reason why I advocate for the union of grief and joy as we move forward. If we wait for the grief to end to find joy, it'll never happen. The timeline we are living in can feel daunting, overwhelming, and too much to bear. It can feel like a reason to quit life, and we hate this side of it. However, we can also see it as a way to walk forward and keep our kid close to our heart. As a reminder that they're always with us and our time here is very limited. Now, before moving on to the last part of this episode, I'm going to go ahead and stop here and recap the first three points. First, many of us are left with unanswered questions when we lose our kids to addiction. Second, the answers to our questions aren't really what, we look, what we're looking for. We want to feel better and make sense of things, and the answers don't actually have the power to do that for us. In fact, the opposite is true. Our continued long-term search for answers we will never find can actually lead to cognitive distortion, which can make our tragedy much worse than it already is by deepening our stress, depression, and anxiety. Third, we each have a timeline now after our child's death. And while it's painful, we can also use it as a reminder of how precious and short life here on earth is. Time marches on whether we completely lose ourselves in grief or whether we choose to walk hand in hand with it. That brings us to our fourth point and what I will always consider to be the very meat of this podcast moving forward at this time. So the experience of living for four and a half months with my son and the little changes that I'm noticing. So um, one thing I did just last week is I recently submitted an, or I submitted an application for intolightproject.org. I think that's what it's called. Just look up Into Light. And what it is, is it's this wonderful project that travels to different cities and they ask for, I don't know if it's always 40 people, but in Denver it's 41 people that have lost a loved one to addiction and they ask some questions and you submit some pictures and then an artist does a sketch of your person and a writer will call you and based on what you write and what you talk about, they'll put together a story and then it's up for for, um, for what do you call I can't even think of what they call it when exhibition. It's up for exhibition in a local hospital. So it is a really profound way to not only honor our loved ones, but also to put names, faces, and stories on this epidemic, which is super, super important as we all know. 
So I have to tell you that I do a lot of writing and a lot of talking and to fill out that questionnaire was really hard. It took me two weeks. One of the weeks I completely walked away from it and it was a beautiful experience to go through because it once again tapped into those raw emotions and I think that that's really beneficial when we can do that. I've gotten really consistent walking again. I'm back to about three and four miles a day. And I often go at night because I feel anonymous. And if I start crying, it doesn't really matter. So that's been, as I said, little tiny steps forward will build, will become larger. And I feel pretty good about the fact that I can count on myself to getting out into nature for at least four or five miles a day or three or four miles a day, even if it's just in the city. I'm also becoming a little bit more social again. One thing I did uh, with in the last couple of weeks is I went to lunch with one of Sam's friends in recovery. And this was really interesting. I was so looking forward to it. And then I, as I'm on my way, I started to cry and I started to panic. And I was panicking because I was crying and I was going to walk in looking like a lobster. And I got really discombobulated. And one of the things I was thinking about is the person I was meeting happened to be Sam, who you will eventually meet also. And I thought, why can't it be my Sam? Why can't my Sam have recovered? Why can't my Sam be doing well? And it, everything hit me like a ton of bricks. And the one thing that happened that was so kind of cool was that as I was crying, I got tenser and tenser because I thought, oh no, oh no, I'm not going to be able to stop crying. And it became worse. And then I thought, what the hell am I doing? I just lost my kid four months ago. If I need to cry, I need to cry. And I kind of just relaxed into it. And what happened is that I cried, but the cry didn't own me. It washed through me and then it was gone and settled. And that was really a spectacular moment in my life because I'm reminded that when I try to control it and tense up and, and it really gets worse, it feels worse, and the anxiety just roars inside me. This time I breathe through it, I let it happen, and I think that I learned something, a huge, huge lesson on that day. Now we're to our last point, and the thing that I absolutely love the most about this podcast is I want to encourage you to move forward. So every single day, do one thing that gives you joy. Keep in mind that can be for any small amount of time, even for a minute. I shared in the first podcast, I was practically dragging myself out the door for five minutes at a time when I first started walking again and taking my dog out. And it sucked so bad. I hated every single second of it, but I kept doing it. And then gradually it sucked less. And then I started to like it more. So this is how taking the very first step works. Once you take the first step, you can take the second step. Next thing, do one thing that makes your life better. And this is the same principle here. Pay the bill, make the bed, do the grocery shopping, finish the laundry, just one thing. Because we want to sit here in our grief and marinate, And we don't want to think about all of the things that we know in life truly don't matter, like making the bed and like paying our bills. But in reality, they do matter. 
They help remind us of the small things that we have control over in our lives, which is super important at this time. And they also build momentum. So if you do one load of laundry this week, then maybe next week you can do an additional one. And that's just how life works. And then lastly, and most importantly, every single day without fail, connect with at least one person who understands you and supports you in your grief. And when you are strong enough, you can turn around and become that one person for somebody else. And before we close out with today's limerick, I just wanted to touch on a real quick point of why I don't tell you what we're going to talk about next week. It's because this podcast is about processing the life, addiction, and death of my son. And I don't really know what it's going to look like next week because I'm just four and a half months in. And this is the process of grieving and going through the, and going through the stages of losing a kid. So, um, next week we're going to talk about moving forward again and bring some other elements into it. And I hope to see you. The limerick of today. There once was a 12 year old girl out for a hike and a thrill. She ran to a deer, but who did appear? a dead man who had taken a pill. And that is a wrap for today's episode. As always, I am so grateful that you chose to stop in. Join me next week where I'll tell you a little bit more about Sam's addiction, his life, and his death, and we'll uncover more aspects of the tragedy of losing our kids this way. Have a beautiful day. 